Father God, we are very, very, very blessed because we know you. Because your son that came for us is our Savior and our Lord. And that makes all the difference in how we celebrate Christmas and how we respond to life and how we love others. So we thank you for giving us that power. Help us to use it for your glory during this special holiday season. We ask now that as we study, that our minds would be clear. Boy, it's a busy time and there's a lot going on and we're excited about cookies and they smell so wonderful, but first we want to feed our souls and so we prepare our hearts and minds to do that now and use your servant Catherine for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy Chrysnuka! Would you open up your Bibles please to Daniel chapter 8? Now, in our continuing study of Daniel's chapter 8 vision, we will look today at verses 11 to 14, although I'm not quite so sure I'm going to get to 13 and 14, but we're going to just keep on doing our verse-by-verse exegetical study of of the text. But I also want to expand on the historical fulfillment of this vision so that we can see the connection with the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah, which is the Hebrew word for dedication, we can see the, the connection between this prophecy and, and the celebration of Hanukkah. How many of you actually really know what the Jewish people celebrate at Hanukkah? A few? A few. Okay. All right. Well, good. After today, you're going to know what they celebrate because we're going to get into that history. I can say that there would be probably no Christmas if it had not been for the miracle, the events and the miracle that took place at Hanukkah, all right? So that's one reason why Christians really should know about this Jewish holiday. It's really, it really, there was a miracle that took place. And we, we, you know, Christmas didn't really take place on December 25th. You all know that, right? Jesus was not born in the winter. The Bethlehem shepherds wouldn't have been out in the field, etc., etc. That's been the day picked. We know he was born. But the Jewish people didn't even celebrate their birthdays. There is a real holiday that we can. I mean, we're going to go ahead and celebrate Christmas, of course, at Christmas time. But there is a real miracle that did take place on December 20, well, around December 25th. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, even though Hanukkah is not one of the seven God-given feasts for Israel that we read about in Leviticus chapter 23, nonetheless, it is a holiday that he, God, made possible. He is, he, his sovereignty always overcomes Satan's schemes to hinder the fulfillment of his word. And that is exactly what the little horn of chapter 8 Look at verse 9, and we identified him as Antiochus Epiphanes. That's actually what he was trying to do. He was trying to overcome God's prophecy. He was trying to wipe out the Jews and wipe out the scripture and Judaism, which is the only pure religion there is. So this is a holiday that God made possible. He intervened. It's also, did you know, a holiday that Jesus himself celebrated. If Jesus celebrated it, don't you think we should at least know about it, if, even if you don't want to celebrate it? But it's worth celebrating. Did you know, and I want you to turn there. John, I should have had you go there first, but keep your marker in Daniel chapter 8. But in John 10... 
John chapter 10, Gospel of John, verse 22, we read about Jesus being in Jerusalem and says it was winter. So this holiday really did happen in winter. And he was there in Jerusalem to celebrate what is called the Feast of Dedication. Okay, what did I tell you the name Hanukkah means in Hebrew? Dedication. So this is another name for Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. And yet another name for Hanukkah is the Feast of Lights. And I think it was Josephus that gave it that title. Well, this lesson today, I didn't tell you the title for our lesson, did I? It's called The Little Horn and the Hanukkah Lights. The Little Horn and the Hanukkah Lights. And we're going to learn how these titles, which mention dedication and lights, how it all came about. Well, Daniel's, if you remember from last time, Daniel's God-given vision in chapter 8 centered on two main characters. Those characters just happened to be animals, right? There was a two-horned ram, and who did the ram symbolize, or what did the ram symbolize? What empire? The Medo-Persian Empire. And who was the other main character? A a unicorn (laughs) he-goat. A he-goat with a notable horn coming right out between his eyes, and he represented... Greece, the Greek Empire, and the notable horn was its first king, who was Alexander the Great, right? Now, Daniel not only saw these two main characters, but he saw two major confrontations that involved these characters. And the first confrontation was a prediction of the upcoming war that would take place between the he-goat, Greece, and the ram. Medo-Persia. And we know from history that this, now from Daniel's perspective, none of this had happened. He's still living in the Babylonian Empire. So he's taught, you know, God is giving him the future. And we now know from our position that this prophecy came to pass exactly as the vision portrayed it to. Because when Alexander came along with the Greek Empire in his fury, what did he do? with that horn, he rammed right into the ram and uh, stomped him to the ground and there was no one to deliver him. That's what we discussed last week and if you look ahead at, uh, or back at verses 7 through 8, the, the Greeks were the ones who conquered the Medes and the Persian. Remember the image? Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's statue, Babylon, then the Medes and the Persians, and then Greece, and then Rome. That's exactly the the uh, sequence of history. So history has since proven the absolute accuracy of this vision prophecy when the Greeks did, in fact, under Alexander's military genius, he was that notable horn, when they conquered the Medes and the Persians. Well, we discussed that last time. Then the second prophetic confrontation of his vision was between a little horn... Not the same little horn that was in chapter 7, but a different little horn had a confrontation with the pleasant land. That's in what, verse 9? What is the pleasant land or the beautiful land? Israel. Okay, so there's going to be, from Daniel's perspective again, there was going to be a future confrontation between this little horn and Israel and her faithful remnant. We discussed that. That's what he means when he says the host of heaven and the stars of heaven, the host of stars. That was the faithful remnant of Israel. 
Now, we didn't finish discussing this second confrontation, but we did set the stage for it by identifying who the little horn is or would be. You know, from Daniel's, it was who he would be. From ours, we know who he was. He, he emerged, you know, once the notable horn, who was the notable horn of the he-goat? Alexander, remember he died, he was broken, just as the prophecy said, just at the apex of his career. He was only 33 years old. He choked on his own vomit and died, and he was replaced by four horns. They didn't come out of the eyes. I guess they came out of here. I don't know. But four horns, because Greece was divided into four dynasties, all right? And out of one of those horns came this little horn. We happen to know from history that it was out of the Seleucid dynasty, the Syrian dynasty of Greece, that Antiochus Epiphanes came, and he is the little horn here. Not the same little horn in seven who is the Antichrist. And I know it gets really confusing, especially if you're here for your first time. You go, what in the world is this woman talking about? All right. <laughs> this is basically, here's what you need to know. God predicted all of this ahead of time. It came to pass exactly as he said it would, just right down to the very little detail. But we set the stage and we found out that the little horn in chapter eight was this man, Antiochus Epiphanes. He was Antiochus IV of the Seleucid dynasty. And he was a prefiguring of the coming Antichrist. So let's look at our scripture for today. Well, actually, I'm going to back up and start at verse 9 and then go through verse 14. But I don't think I'm going to get all the way through. You'll just have to read your notes when they come in email. All right, but let's begin with verse... Actually, let's back up to 8. Therefore, the he-goat, that's Greece, waxed very great... And when he was strong, the great horn was broken. That's the death of Alexander. And for it, or from it, came up four notable ones toward the four winds of the heaven. And out of one of them came forth a little horn. That's Antiochus, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. That's toward Israel. And it, the he-goat, Antiochus, waxed great even to the host of heaven. Okay, here's where he's battling the host of heaven, the faithful remnant of Israel. And it, the he-goat, cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon him. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice, that would be the, te uh, the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem, by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth. That's the scripture, the word of God. Cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. And let me just go ahead and read 13 and 14. Then I heard one saint, and that would be a holy angel, speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint... <laughs> which spake, here's a question that was asked by one angel to another angel. How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? That's a complicated way of saying, how long is this little horn going to persecute the people of Israel? That's the question. How long is he going to be allowed to do this? And here's the answer. Verse 14, and he said unto me. Now, Daniel didn't ask the question, but he was given the answer. 
the angel said unto him, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. There we are at the thing having to do with Hanukkah, when the sanctuary, the temple was cleansed. All right, so an angel asked, how long is this little horn going to persecute Israel and stomp down the truth, have an abomination on the temple? And the angel says, 2,300 days. Now, I just wanted to tell you, make sure you read your notes when you get them. But this is where Seventh-day Adventism came about. Because William Miller, who was the founder of it, he was actually a Baptist preacher, but he took this, this question here by the angel, and he misguidedly, and he admitted it before he died, but he misguidedly took the 2,300 days and said they were years instead of days, and that it all spoke about the return of Christ in 2,300 years from the time when Artaxerxes signed a decree to have the temple rebuilt, which has nothing to do with this passage. So I don't know why, where he got that starting date, but it has nothing to do with this. That's the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. Anyway, he was really off. But he said that Jesus was going to return in the year 1812. No, he was going to return March 21st, 1843. He made his little calculations And he said he was going to return. Guess what? Jesus didn't return on March 21st, 1843. So he said he made a boo-boo and he recalculated and said, okay, he's going to come March 21st, 1844. I was off a year. Jesus didn't return that year either. And so some of his followers said he made another slight miscalculation. They reset the date to October 22nd, 1844. And again, Jesus didn't didn't come and Miller gave up. Now, his followers were called the Millerites, but he later admitted that he had made a mistake. But other people took up his, all his thinking, and there was a woman named Ellen G. White, and she pursued this kind of thinking, and then she went even further, and I have all of it in your notes. But I just wanted you to know that that's Seventh-day Adventist, where it first originated, was from the followers of William Miller. Because, and this is so true with many, I don't want to call it a cult, but a lot of False religions and false ideas come from a misinterpretation of Scripture. One tiny little thing like that. When Jesus says days here, he means days. Or when God says days, he meant days, not years. All right, that was free. Uh, (laughs) Now, we left off last time with verse 10, where in his vision, Daniel saw that the little horn not only attacked the people of God, but he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, That means that this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, saw himself as equal with the prince of the host. Who is that? Who is the commander of the host of Israel? None other than the Lord. So he magnified himself to the position of God. And we saw that, didn't we? Just by the names he gave to himself, the titles, he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means the manifest one. And worse, remember, he called himself Theos. Antiochus Epiphanes, which means I am Antiochus God manifest, or I am Antiochus the visible God. You don't get any more egotistic than that, do you? But uh, so he had an ego problem. He claimed to be a revelation, an epiphany of the gods. And he even had the word Theos which, you know, is where we get theology. Theos in Greek means God. He even had the word theos stamped on Greek coins 
that were minted with his face. With each reminting of those coins, that face became more and more to look like the face of Zeus, which was the chief god of Greek mythology, the head god, the king of the gods of Mount Olympus. So, in order to explain now the next part of Daniel's prophetic vision, which tells us that the little horn, a.k.a. Antiochus, took away the daily sacrifice and he cast down the sanctuary and he also cast the truth to the ground. In order to explain that, this is where we need to understand the history of the events that led to this abomination of desolation, as Jesus himself called it. Well, back in 171 BC, think that's about 200 years before Christ was born, Antiochus IV came to the throne of the Seleucid division of the Greek Empire. He was the eighth king to sit on the Seleucid throne. And as I said, he was an egotistical tyrant. He was anxious to unite the numerous cultures and languages and groups of his particular division of the Greek kingdom. He saw diversities among the various subjects of his kingdom as a negative. He saw diversity as a negative factor to his own power. So he promptly set about to impose Hellenization on all the people he conquered. Greek, the Greeks refer, or the Greek people, and I know this because I'm Greek, but they refer to Greece as Elas. So it just means Greekitizing, Hellenizing, Greekitizing. And that involved really more than just an indoctrination into Greek culture and Greek philosophy and Greek, uh, the lang- Greek language and customs. It was founded, Hellenization was founded on their pagan religion. That's the worst part of all of it. And because they not only deified nature, you know, the trees and the flowers and everything, you know, they deified all of that, but they had devised an extremely immoral way to worship their vast pantheon of gods and goddesses. I mean, they had temple prostitutes and the whole thing. It was very, very immoral. Well, the resulting response to Antiochus's desire to Hellenize Uh, that small little nation of Israel. The response to that was the development of two political factions in Israel. Like, you know, we have the Democrats and the Republicans. Well, they they had two political factions. There was the religious faction, which was comprised of the Orthodox Jews, you know, those who really were committed to preserving Judaism, and their whole sacrificial system in the temple, and the pure worship of Jehovah God. So those were the good guys, okay? The Orthodox party. And then there was the progressive, secular, Hellenistic party of the Jews. And this primarily included the elite Jewish aristocracy. They were not as concerned about their religion as they were with the social and economic advantages that they could possibly gain, you know, personally for themselves if Israel was accepted by what they considered to be the more advanced and the more civilized, the more tolerant nations of the world who were, you know, becoming Hellenized. So they were for being Greekitized and the Orthodox were not for it at all. And Antiochus, he intensified 
this situation for the Orthodox Jews when he gave the sacred position of the high priesthood to a Hellenistic-minded Jew who had changed his name, and we mentioned him a little bit last time. His, his God-given, his family-given name, uh, his Hebrew name was Joshua. It doesn't get any better than that, right? Because that's Jesus's, you know, Yahshua. But he changed his name Joshua to the definitely Greek name of Jason. He was Jewish. I didn't know last time. I think I, I didn't know for sure if he was Jewish, but I found out he was Jewish. He changed his name, however, to Jason. And he, to get the position of being the high priest of Israel, he brought, he gave a bribe to Antiochus. He also promised Antiochus that he would build a large temple to, and dedicate it to the, the Greek god Phallus. I don't even want to get into that. And then he promised him that he would uh, build a gymnasium, which was actually built right next to the temple. And you could look from the temple into the gymnasium, and all the Greek athletes, you know, competed in the nude. And so it was just horrifying to the Orthodox Jews. And then he also promised Antiochus that he would manage to coerce the people of Jerusalem to become as Greek citizens. He made all these promises, and so Antiochus arranged the murder of Jason's brother, who was the rightful high priest, and he was an Orthodox Jew. So he had him, his name was Johannan, Onias III, I think it is, but he had him murdered and then put his brother, Joshua Jason, in his place. This was the very first time that an outsider had tampered with the very sacred position of the high priesthood. The outsider was Antiochus, and he put in a false high priest. Remember how I said he could be a picture in type of the false prophet in the end times. Antiochus is a picture of the Antichrist of the last times, and Jason is a picture of the false prophet of the end times. But three years later, we get another false prophet, because three years later, another man who was not even Jewish, and he wasn't even of the, um, the high priestly family. At least Jason was in the high priestly family. But this other man, his name was Menelaus, and he offered Antiochus an even larger bribe for the position of the high priesthood. And he planned to pay off that bribe by stealing from the temple treasury. Hmm. You thought we had corruption nowadays? (laughs) Nothing new under the sun, right? And it was granted, of course. Antiochus took took the the bribe. But Menelaus had a problem because once he became the high priest, he found out that there wasn't enough money in the temple treasury to pay off what he promised to give to Antiochus. He sold all the temple treasures, you know, all the gold from the temple. He took it and he sold it so that he could pay off his bribe to Antiochus. So needless to say, do you think the Orthodox Jews are very happy at this point in time? Ooh, not at all, not at all. So while all this horrific corruption is going on in Israel, Antiochus, he's not in Israel at this time, he's on the march, okay, with his army because he wants to expand his kingdom. It says he, you know, waxed exceeding great. He, he has this idea that he wants to expand and take away the Ptolemaic division of the Greek Empire and all the others, you know, and just keep going like Alexander did. Uh, So he goes to war against Egypt. Egypt was at that time under the dominion of the Ptolemaic 
part of the Greek dynasty. No, this is confusing. But in chapter 11, we're going to talk about these again because the Seleucids are the king of the south and the, I mean, the kings of the, the king of the north and the uh, Ptolemies are the king of the south. And we'll be talking more about it. So if you don't get it, just don't worry about it. But <laughs> this is interesting because he decides that he's going to go down to Egypt. And, he, and when he did with his big army, it looked like he was going to win, that he was going to take over Egypt. However, there was this place in Italy that was beginning, just beginning to have some real significant power. And that place was called Rome. Rome wisely determined to do what she could to keep the Greek empire divided. Because the Greek empire divided by four is less powerful than the Greek empire united under one, like Alexander. So what Rome did is she sent an envoy down to Egypt to try to prevent a war between the Seleucid king, Antiochus, and the Ptolemaic Egypt. When Antiochus was confronted with Rome's demand that he abort his attack on the city of Alexandria, Antiochus used his, you know, the typical tactic of stalling for time. Now, the one they sent, the one Rome sent to try to stop this war, to try to stop Antiochus in his track, was a a man by the name of Popilius. Well, Popilius was wise, okay? So he confronts Antiochus, and Antiochus tries to stall for time, by saying, you know, because Popilius says, he says this to him, you have to decide whether you want war with Rome or not. And uh, so he says, well, you know, let me think about it. So what does Popilius do? He gets a stick and he draws a big circle in the sand around him and Antiochus. And he says, okay, I'm going to give you until I walk outside of this line in the sand to decide. And did you know that's where expression drawing a a line in the sand came from? That was an historical event. It actually took place. It's in the history book. It really did. That's where it came from, drawing a line in the sand. And so, you know what? Antiochus knew that he couldn't defeat Rome. You know, he was only one-fourth of the Greek empire, and he realized he could not defeat Rome. She was getting pretty powerful, and so he was forced to withdraw from Egypt. And that is a very difficult thing to do for an egomaniac, right? Very humbling in front of all his troops and everything. Well, if you can think of geography on his return trip from Egypt back to Syria, what little land does he have to pass through? Israel, of course. That's a land bridge. Israel is kind of a land bridge between three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. So that's why there's always armies marching through that tiny little piece of property. But he has to pass through Israel, and he's in a horrible frame of mind. Nobody wants to go near this guy right now, okay? He's like ready to explode. He's been humiliated by his recent encounter with Rome, and he's upset about the waste of taking all his troops down to Egypt and then just having to return, you know, go back home. He's just ready to explode. And the spark that set off that explosion was the news that he received when he stopped in Jerusalem. That news was that Jason, who is now the ex-high priest, 
had mounted a rebellion against Menelaus, who was the bigger bribe high priest. So Jason was mad that he'd been replaced, so he mounted a rebellion against Menelaus, the new high priest. And when he did that, he was actually challenging Antiochus' authority, right? Because Antiochus had put Menelaus in power. So that's all it took, and bomb exploded. Antiochus had had it, and he totally exploded. Now, we get a lot of this history from the book, the books of First and Second Maccabees. They are not divinely inspired, but they give us a lot of great history. They're the, you know, part of the intertestamental books that come between Malachi and Matthew. And so in 1 Maccabees chapter 1, it tells us how Antiochus came into Jerusalem. When he came into Jerusalem, he came with you know, his great multitude of soldiers. And at first, you know, he heard this news, but at first he spoke deceitful words of peace to the Jewish people. And they believed him. They believed him. But then suddenly... Everyone who was feeling safe and secure and unguarded, they were attacked. He fell on the city. Now, who does that remind you of to yet come, the one who's going to yet come, when Israel is saying peace and safety, and they believe the deception of a promised covenant by the Antichrist? The same thing. Antichrist is going to deceive Israel. Sign a covenant of death, it's called, covenant of hell. Then, But then suddenly, in the middle of the tribulation, all hell is going to break out. And that's what happened exactly with Antiochus. He fell on the city of Jerusalem. The full heat of his frustration with Egypt and Rome's intervention was vented on the Jewish people. He ordered his general to destroy Jerusalem. Houses were set on fire. The walls of the city were broken and smashed to pieces. Tens of thousands of Jews were killed. I'm talking about maybe as many as 80,000 Jewish people were killed. And another 40,000 were made slaves. It was just horrible, horrible, horrible. But even that wasn't enough for the maniac, this Syrian Greek maniac. Remember the Jews behind his back called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the maniac which is exactly what he was. So he turned his eyes toward their temple, their beautiful temple, and he ordered his soldiers to hack and smash the porches, you know, the beautiful columns of the porches, Solomon's porch, smash them, smash the gates to pieces. And they stripped the temple of every bit of its remaining golden vessels and the treasury and everything. And on Kislev 15, now Kislev is a a Hebrew month. You know, they don't say like we do, January, February, March, April. They have their own names for the months. Kislev is comparable to our December. So on December 15th, Kislev 15, of course it fluctuates. It's not, you know, exactly the same as December 15th. 168 BC was the year he placed an idol of Zeus in the temple. And the face of Zeus was actually his face. Hmm. Well, 10 days later, which made it Kislev 25, okay, December, like 25, Antiochus offered to Zeus the sacrifice of a pig. Well, not only is that an idol, but what's wrong with the, the meat he used to the Jews? Pig was considered unclean, 
I'm claiming, you know, to this day, the Jewish people don't eat bacon. <laughs> Missing out on pork chops and bacon and barbecue. You know, it was the dietary laws of Leviticus that they were obeying. But he offered to Zeus a pig on the altar of sacrifice outside the most holy place. And then he desecrated. He sent his soldiers into the holy of holies, which no one was to go into, but he sent his men in there to desecrate the inside of the holy of holies. And they um, sprinkled the pig's blood all over the holy of holies. And then he had the other pig's secretions, you know, the pig juices. He had them poured on the holy scrolls of the Old Testament scriptures. And that wasn't enough. Then he had the scriptures cut up in pieces and burned. So you see how it's coming to pass where it says here in verse 11 that he wanted to cast down the truth to the ground? That's the scripture he was trying to get rid of of God's word. It was the ultimate ultimate abomination to the faithful Jews, the faithful remnant, those who really believed in Jehovah God. And they they were just reeling in horror over all of these atrocities, all of which, as we see, were prophesied by Daniel, I mean by God, through Daniel's vision here in chapter 8, some 400 years earlier. That's amazing. 400 years before this, he had predicted every bit of this. It's right there in verses 9 to 12. And that that prediction was of a coming little horn emerging from one of the four horns of the he-goat who would wax exceeding great, magnify himself in the pleasant land by casting to the ground the believing remnant of Israel, the host of heaven, the host of stars, as well as casting down to the ground the truth, the holy scriptures. So does God know the future? Yes, of course. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes was indeed a prophetic type of what will yet occur in the middle of the seven-year tribulation on earth in the end times because the Antichrist, we know, will also desecrate the most holy place in the rebuilt tribulation temple in Jerusalem. And how will he do it? Will he place an idol of Zeus in the holy place? No, he will place an idol of himself in the holy place for all to mandatorily worship him or face death. And then in unabashed anti-Semitism, he will begin his attempt to completely wipe out the Jewish people of the whole world. And he will succeed, we know from Zechariah 13.9, in killing off two-thirds of all the Jewish people during the tribulation period. Jesus spoke of this in the Olivet Discourse, didn't he? Uh, Matthew 24, 15, he spoke of this abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Now, this was actually what we call a dual fulfillment prophecy. When Daniel got this vision in chapter 8, it was a vision of what would happen 400 years later with Antiochus, and it was also a prophecy of what would happen in the end times with the Antichrist. So it's a dual fulfillment prophecy. You following me? Yes? Okay. So the temple in Jerusalem was converted into a shrine for the worship of Zeus, and only pigs were allowed as sacrifices. Antiochus converted the various chambers of the priests. You know, the temple had all kinds of different chambers in it, the temple proper. He converted those chambers that were for the priests into houses of prostitution. He also issued an edict that forbade the practice of Judaism or face death. 
his Syrian army enforced this decree to the effect, I mean, to the, to the, uh, they enforced this edict to the degree that even they made house searches. They would just burst into Jewish homes and make a search to ensure the obedience of the Jewish people. And if, when they went into a house, if they found that any Jewish people were practicing the laws of the Sabbath, you know, for example, not doing anything on Saturday and all that, or if they were following the dietary laws, or if they had their baby boys circumcised, or if any scrolls of the law were found in their house, you know, page of scripture, the whole family was put to death. And young babies, young babies that were found circumcised were tied around their mother's necks and they were both cast from the walls. And of course they died because the walls were high. Some were boiled alive, I hate to talk about this, in cauldrons of you know, hot oil. Uh, there's, there's, uh, when they refused to eat the pig meat. There's one case that um, you can read about. This is true. There was a, a woman named Hannah. She had seven sons. They, they um, killed each one of her sons in front of her by cutting off their tongues and their hands before then boiling them to death in the hot oil. You know, and all, all they'd say is you have to eat the pig meat that we've sacrificed to Zeus. And she encouraged, she stood there, encouraged every one of her sons not to do it, to stay true to Jehovah God. And everyone did of, the, of them. And then last of all, they, they killed her. True story, true story. And there's many other cases like that. These faithful Jews, just like Daniel in the lion's den and the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace, these faithful Jews, the host of, uh, what's it called, the host of heaven, they were determined to place their faith in God, you know, even if they weren't delivered. They weren't delivered. These weren't delivered physically, were they? But, of course, absent from the body, and they were, well, they weren't present with the Lord until after Christ, but they were in paradise, all right? So, but they were martyrs. They were true Jewish martyrs, and they were saved, because this is before Christ, and they didn't have to. They just had to believe in the coming Messiah. But probably the most tragic part of this horrific time in Jewish history is that there was this apostate portion of the Jewish people who were helping. They were assisting Antiochus in his efforts to assimilate the Jews into the Greek culture. They were traitors, weren't they? They would even turn in their own fellow family members to Antiochus, which is, again, what's going to happen in the tribulation, you know, telling them, oh, they've got a copy of the scroll or they just circumcised their baby or whatever. And these people, these Jews, these secular Hellenistic Jews actually helped to build that gymnasium where the athletes <clears throat> performed in the, in the nude. And they, they covered their own circumcision. And they sacrificed to the pagan idols, and they profaned the Sabbath. That is what God, or what it's talking about in verse 12. I know it's confusing when we read it, but in verse 12 it says, And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. That is talking about the transgression of Israel, not the transgression of Antiochus, but the transgression of Israel, because so many of the Jews went along with Antiochus. That was their transgression. And that is big reason why they're being persecuted like this. You know, God was chastening them. But Antiochus's message was very clear. Either assimilate 
You know, integrate with us, accept our ways, assimilate, or be annihilated. Satan was obviously using this very wicked man to try to obliterate the Jewish people from earth before the Messiah could be born. Wasn't that his plan all through the Old Testament? Because he heard the Genesis 3.15 promise, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So all through the Old Testament, he's trying to prevent the Messiah, the seed of the woman, from ever coming. To enforce this diabolic plan, to completely integrate the Jews into the Greek culture and end the worship of the true God, Syrian soldiers were sent throughout the land. They didn't just stay there in Jerusalem. They went to all the little towns and villages in Israel. And when they got there, they would build an altar to Zeus. You know, they just put some stones together and they would build an altar and then they would gather all the townspeople around and have them offer a sacrifice and force them to eat the pig meat. Well, they went to one little village. It was called Modin, M-O-D-I-I-N, some 17 miles northwest of the city of Jerusalem. And as they had been doing, when the soldiers got there, they built their little altar to Zeus and they commanded the gathering of the townspeople And they saw one aged priest there. They could tell he was a priest by what he was wearing. His name was Mattathias. And they singled him out of the crowd and ordered him to come forward and offer the sacrifice of the pig to the Greeks, to the Greek god, in order to honor Antiochus Epiphanes. This man, Mattathias' response was, Never. Good for you, buddy. (laughs) Never in a million years. But, Before the soldiers could react to that response, an apostate Jewish priest in that crowd, a Hellenistic Jewish priest, intervened. He came forward and he said, never mind, I'll do it. I will offer the pig. I'll do it. Now, the townspeople knew what would follow. If that apostate priest did offer the pig on the altar, guess what they would all have to do? They would all have to participate in eating the pig meat because once the pig was sacrificed, each of them would be forced to eat its flesh or they would perish. They would die by the sword. And all of this was more than that old priest, Mattathias Hasmonean. That was his name. This is where the Hasmonean dynasty came into in Jewish history, but uh, his, his name was Mattathias. This was more than he could tolerate when this apostate priest was willing to do this. And so in an unexpected flash, I mean, before the Syrian soldiers could respond, he grabbed, he ripped the sword from the the, uh, hand of the Syrian officer in charge and he killed, he ran at that apostate priest and he killed him. And his his body fell on the altar. And then rushing forward, he used that same sword to, to run it through the, um, the body of the, or the, the Syrian officer. Okay, now this guy, Mattathias, had five sons. And following their father's example, guess what they did? They killed, I mean, the townspeople outnumbered the Syrian guards, so they killed all the Syrian soldiers that were there. And then they pulled down that altar to Zeus and they fled to the hills of Judea. They left their homes and they left all their possessions behind and a revolt was begun. A revolt began against the enemies of the true God. And as word spread then throughout all of Israel about what had happened in this one little village, more and more Jewish men left their homes and their towns and their villages their families to go join Mattathias. 
and his sons. And they engaged in guerrilla warfare, you know, hiding behind rocks and stones. And every time they'd see a Syrian uh, party of soldiers come, they'd run out and they would kill them. And they they would destroy their pagan altars. You know, they would sneak up at night and just destroy the altars that they had built to Zeus. And they, um, they killed the apostate Jews, too. They had killed the apostate Jews, the Hellenistic Jews. However, within a year of the beginning of that revolt, Mattathias was old. He got sick, and he died. But before he died, he passed his leadership on to one of his sons named Judah, J-U-D-A-H. And that son proved to be very keen in military strategy. And he soon soon earned himself a nickname, Judah the the Maccabee. Judah the Maccabee. You know what Maccabee, well, actually the Hebrew word is Maccavet. It means hammer. Judah the hammer. And this was the beginning of the Maccabean revolt. The Maccabean revolt. The power of his military might was like a hammer, and his followers, as I said, became known as the Maccabees or the Hasmoneans because Mattathias, is, he was from the priestly family of the Hasmoneans. Well, for three years, the Maccabees continued their revolt against the forces of Antiochus. They would hide in caves, you know, as I said, behind stones and all, and they'd wait to ambush any passing Syrians. And finally... They met their enemy in an open battle and won some amazing victories. I mean, these are just farmers, you know, but they they were able to actually defeat the, um, the Syrians and they were able to march to Jerusalem and retake the city and successfully push the Syrians out of their land. It was a great victory. But when Judah the Maccabee and his brothers and his followers entered Jerusalem, they were horrified with what they saw there. The temple gates had been burned. Weeds grew waist high in all of the temple courtyards. It was, it was a mess. And in the middle of all this destruction was the face of Antiochus looking at them. You know, there in the holy place, from the statue Zeus, but Zeus had Antiochus's face. And uh, so they were overwhelmed. I mean, they tore their robes, they threw ashes, you know, they were mourning. They were just overwhelmed with sorrow. They wept in agony over the defilement that had taken place in God's holy place. But then they got up and they began the mending process, which began with cleansing the sanctuary. First of all, First thing they did. Now, what would be the first thing you would do? Remove what? The statue. (laughs) You don't want Antiochus looking at you anymore. So the first thing they did was they removed the statue of Zeus with Antiochus's face on it, and they rebuilt the holy altar with new stones. Now, however, when they went into the temple proper and into the holy place and the holy of holies, there's no windows inside of that temple proper. Okay, I wish I had pictures, but there's no windows at all. In, in order to be able to cleanse it of all the defilement, remember the pig's blood and the pig's secretions and all that was in there? To cleanse it, they needed to be able to see. And it's pitch black in there. And uh, the light before had always come from the, the giant candlestick that was in there. And it burned continuously with oil. According to... Um, 
according to Jewish tradition and also the Babylonian Talmud, the Maccabees, you know, to burn the light in the candle, they had to have holy oil. This is complicated, but um, it had to be made this special way from olive oil and it had to have this and that, you know, done to it. And they could only, and then it had to have the seal of the high priest on it. And they could only find one cruise of oil that still had the high priest seal on it. It hadn't been broken, okay? Only one cruise of oil, which they knew was only enough oil to keep that lampstand burning for one day. And yet everyone knew it was going to take them more than just one day to cleanse the holy temple because they had to be meticulous, you know, get every corner, every little thing. Yet, miraculously, and here's where God intervened, what happened with that one little cruise of oil? Instead of just lasting one day, how long did it last? Eight days. It was funny because I had somebody ask me yesterday, I have a question for you, Catherine. She did, she's not in the Bible study, so she didn't even know I was going to be talking about this. She said, why, did, why is Hanukkah eight days long? And I said, just like Siri on your phones, you know? I said, ah, it is because, and then I was able to give the reason. <laughs> but this is why Hanukkah is celebrated for eight days, is because that, and why it's called the Feast of Lights, too. Because that one little cruise of oil lasted eight days, and they were completely able to cleanse the whole temple. It was cleansed, and the rededication of the altar to Jehovah God was completed, here you go, on Kislev 25. Kislev 25, 165 B.C. And that is celebrated, right, around the same time as Christmas. Now, it's, that's the beginning date. They have a beginning date. And I want to tell you something interesting. This year, for the first time since 1959, some of you weren't even born yet, but for the first time since 1959, Hanukkah begins on December 25th, same as Christmas. So I don't know if that's significant, but it's interesting, isn't it? But so it has a beginning date, and it fluctuates. I mean, sometimes it's December 15th, sometimes it's December 8th. It all has to do with the Hebrew calendar and the full moon and all that kind of stuff. The miracle of the oil is not really the primary reason that the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. That's not the primary reason. The primary reason is that God used his faithful remnant, those who truly believed in him, he used them in the Maccabean revolt to enable the Jewish people to continue to be Jewish people, you know, so that his son could come from the right descendants of Abraham and David, etc. And it was because of that Maccabean revolt that they were able to reoccupy the holy city and rededicate their temple to him and regain their autonomy from the Syrian Greeks. Today, one of the principal ceremonies of Hanukkah, and all, I cannot get, we can't get all of these candles to stay in here for anything. I mean, we tried and tried, but <laughs> I guess I have to melt wax to do it properly. But, you know, I have three Jewish ladies in the um, Sanford study. One of them is from Chicago. She's a lawyer, and I, she's a, you know, she's a Jewish Christian. And I told her I was going to teach on Hanukkah. So guess what I got by Amazon this week? I was so excited. A little menorah. It's called a menorah. But anyway, one of the principal ceremonies of Hanukkah is the lighting of eight candles. There's four on each side. And they, they light. They have a way of doing it each night of Hanukkah. But they always use the center candle to light the other eight candles. This nine-branch 
Hanukkah menorah is actually called a Hanukkiah, Hanukkiah. And this middle candle is special. See how it's raised up higher than the others? Can you see that? This middle candle is special. It is called the shamash, which means the servant candle. Because that candle, he is used to light each. Now, the first day, they just light one candle. The second night of Hanukkah, they light two, three, four. You know, by the, the end, they, they have used this to light all eight candles. And, they, and I grew up in a very, very Jewish suburb in, of Chicago. And I remember at Christmas time seeing all the menorahs in so many of the windows as we passed by because there was a lot of Jewish people. But that special center candle is used to light the others. Actually, what we have here, and I'm going to close with this, but this is a beautiful, beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus because it prefigured the far greater spiritual, not physical, but spiritual deliverance we have in him. He is the suffering servant who willingly burned out in order to bring light to all of us. You know, by the end of the eight days, this candle is really short. You know, he's been used each night to light the other ones. He's, he's the light of the world. He is the one who is the light of life. And now remember where I told you Jesus was celebrating Hanukkah? Was in John chapter 10? This is really fascinating. But what we have is a, a scriptural menorah. But he's celebrating the Feast of Dedication in John chapter 10, verse 22. And, uh, this is the only time, by the way, in all of scripture where this holiday is mentioned is in John 10. But we find something interesting. At that occasion, he was asked, you know, how long are you going to leave us in doubt? If you are really the Christ, will you please tell us? You know, tell us openly. And you know what he said in response? He said, the Father and I are one. Well, that's about as plain as you can get it, right? (laughs) I'm not only the Christ, I'm God. I'm equal with the Father. Now, Antiochus had made a similar claim, didn't he? And the Antichrist will make a similar claim, that they are God, but the only one who really said that rightfully is Jesus Christ. Well, here's what's interesting. Did you know that John 10 passage is preceded and followed by nine times when Jesus calls, refers to himself as the light, the light of the world. There's uh, John 8, 12, where he says he's the light of the world. There's John 9, 5, I am the light of the world. There's, then you skip over to John 11, John 12. But anyway, make it a long story short. Nine times he refers to himself as the light. And those are chapters, they come in chapters 8, 9, 11, and 12. 8, 9, 11, and 12. And in chapter 10, he, the servant candle, is just decla- has just declared that he is one with God. So that is a scriptural menorah. You study it more again when you get the notes and look at it, but it's fascinating. Because he willingly became the suffering servant, the suffering servant, the shamash candle, because he was willing to become the suffering servant of Jehovah, he is the light of men, the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So this is a picture of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Hanukkah, the holiday to commemorate the dedication of the temple to God, is celebrated at the same time Christians are celebrating Christmas. Because in effect, Christmas is a celebration of the dedication of the true temple of God. 
Christ became man. His body for 33 years was actually the true temple of God. And he dedicated that true temple for the sacrificial atonement work uh, for all of us. He was born to die, wasn't he? And as I said, this year, Christmas and Hanukkah fall on exactly the same day, December 25th. So I think that's a, 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 you know, something worth, you can get these. I saw them at Hobby Lobby. They're not very expensive. But something that maybe you can teach your kids, your grandchildren, because it's true history and it's really exciting and it is really the true feast of lights. (laughs) You know, not a Christmas tree. Um, So as Christians, we can celebrate both Hanukkah and Christmas, and so I say to all of you, happy Christ Nuka. Lord, thank you for the patience of your people. I was going to have a short lesson. That didn't turn out very well, did it? But uh, thank you for their patience. Thank you for their hunger, for their word, and I pray everyone will have a blessed, wonderful Christ Nuka season. Thank you for Hanukkah, because it made the birth of your son possible. We pray Jesus in your blessed name. Amen.